It's your boy back with episode 97 of the Opinion Overload podcast. And guess what's up with my nose? Uh, I have a little bit of a scab on one side. On the inside, it feels like a scab at least, or clotted blood. That's kind of making my nose sound like a whistle on one side. That's really fun. Um, so I feel like this week, what I want to talk about is the history and the similarities of grappling martial arts, mostly being judo, jujitsu, and wrestling. A little bit of sambo, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to talk about the history of those today because it's kind of been something I've been doing a lot recently. So all, as far as we can trace, there's two main influences for jiu-jitsu. Those are catch wrestling in the United States and judo in Japan. Now, there's a bit of an interesting history with judo because there's the creator of judo is named Jigoro Kano. And he created what's called the Kodokan, which was the main, it was the school, the original school of judo. And uh, Jigoro Kano was born December 10th, 1860. And he created judo in uh, his early life. He has a few books out. Uh, one is called Mind Over Muscle. That was put out in 2005, probably post, definitely post uh, mortem. And then one that's called Kodokan Judo, which is the original judo textbooks. Um, there's quite a few techniques in, in judo. There's the 15 original uh, Kodokan uh, Nagewaza techniques, which is the judo throws. And those are all broken down. I'm not going to go through the names, but there's parts of judo like Ukemi, which is basically you're the practice partner who's getting thrown. Uh, there's a whole art to falling in judo that you have to learn. Basically, like you should be able to fall anywhere, any place, and be perfectly fine because you know how to fall. But the uh, art of judo was developed in 1882 by Jigoro Kano as a modern martial art, which was it was moderately comprehensive. In the sense that judo has niwaza, uh, there's kosen judo. Those are both ground uh, techniques, groundwork, similar, very similar, if not the roots of jujitsu. There's the kodokan techniques, which is the uh, nagewaza, which is the throws. There was a little bit, uh, I believe, of striking in judo in the very, very early um, techniques, but most of their fight-ending techniques are submissions, joint locks, chokes, you know, some strikes, but, you know, they didn't do it as much as they did things like arm bars or kimuras or, you know, maybe even uh, omoplatos are more of a catch wrestling thing. So the idea behind judo is that it's a gentle form of, of fighting. You know, I I get where they're going with it, but I could disagree. Now, Jigoro Kano was, he was a pretty smart dude. He was an educator. Um, 
He was a part of the, the shogunate government. He married a, a daughter of a brewing company. So he was also pretty wealthy. The um, base of his combat sports experience came from jujutsu. Not jujitsu. Uh, Japanese jujitsu is the precursor to judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's kind of like, think of just military fighting is, is basically what I know about it because it was designed during the Meiji Restoration, restoration a little bit before that, uh, samurai time. The, you know, all the techniques of stuff like judo, especially things like the throws, are designed specifically... If you're if you're a hundred percent, you know you've nailed everything. Your eighth degree black belt, which is the highest in the sport, I believe, um, it's eighth degree, which is a red and black belt. So it's similar to jujitsu. Is you should be able to execute a throw perfectly with no effort, or almost no effort, because the way you move is effectively the throw. It's not like. Um, you know, Greco-Roman wrestling, which is effectively no-gi judo. I was thinking about this today, and they're basically the same thing because there's no leg attacks. It's all throwing and, you know, uh, trips and stuff like that. Actually, I wonder if you can trip in Greco-Roman because there's no leg attacks. Hmm. I have to figure that out. But in Greco-Roman, there is the bear, the bear hug throw... Uh, body lock attacks, stuff like that, which is a lot more brute strength. Like you're just grabbing someone, locking your hands around him and throwing him. Um, that's not as big in judo. There are some, there's stuff in judo that is very, very similar to Greco-Roman wrestling, which is why I say that one is they're just no-gi versions of, in-gi versions of each other. Because uh, Seoinage, which is the shoulder throw, is also a thing in wrestling and is a very popular move. Um, for throwers, I mean, it's not like everyone's doing it, but it's a popular move for throwers because it's an exceptionally simple technique. Same thing with Uchimata. They're very, uh, the grips are different because in judo you have the gi, so you can grab, grab onto fabric and you can grab onto the lapel of the collar and you can make your moves. But in Greco or jujitsu with no gi, you would have to grab the collar and the wrist and you would step differently. I mean, you would still be doing the back step, but with things like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, when Count Maeda and Jigoro, I don't think Jigoro Kano went um, to Brazil. Let's see. I know it was Maeda, but when did he go to Brazil? I believe it was in the early 1900s. It was like the 1920s. Um, he went to Brazil in 1914 and he started teaching. This is where it gets kind of um, controversial because it's, it's stated that he taught the Gracie family first, but there's other families that um, basically claim that they were taught by Jigoro Kano or not Jigoro Kano, uh, Count Maeda and people who claim that it wasn't 
Maeda that taught the Gracies judo. It was another family. Um, I don't remember their name right now, but for all intents and purposes, we're going to say that it was Count Maeda taught the Gracies jiu-jitsu. Now, the way that they took it and ran with it probably wasn't expected because Nuaza was effective. It wasn't as refined as something like the ground game of jiu-jitsu is today because jiu-jitsu is all ground game. It would be um, similar to very, very early jiu-jitsu, like the super old school stuff, like the 50s and 60s, because that was that was still very much based in the Nuaza. And catch wrestling techniques are a lot of of jiu-jitsu too. Like the omoplata is a catch wrestling technique. I mentioned that earlier, but people seem to count it as a jiu-jitsu technique when it was clearly documented in books beforehand. And wrestling as a sport was extremely popular in the United States around the time of the civil war. So around the time, you know, judo was being developed and it was, you know, becoming popular in Japan, uh, like a side note here, judo is used as a form of physical education in elementary schools in Japan and, you know, middle schools and stuff like that. And I mean, it's, it's a good way to do it. Seems pretty fun. I like throwing people. Um, wrestling used to be so popular post civil war that people would wait outside telegraph stations to hear the results of matches. Now this is where you can go look up guys like uh, George Hackenschmidt. Let's see. Yeah, George Hackenschmidt. H-A-C-K-E-N-S-C-H-M-I-D-T. He was a wrestler who also invented the bench press. He was pretty jacked for the time. That was like 1865. He could bend nails, stuff like that. He was pretty... Um, he leaned a lot on the plant-based diet stuff, though. He has a quote that said, the optimal meal is three quarters vegetables and one quarter meat. Uh, I'm inclined to agree with him, but you know, so what I'm getting back to here, jujitsu came into Brazil around 1920. The Gracie family took it and ran. Now here is where it gets kind of complicated because the Gracie family tree is a pretty political so I'm going to run down this Gracie tree real quick. There's Gastel Gracie and Cecilina. Those are the parents of the first generation of Gracie kids. There's Carlos Gracie, who's one son, and Oswaldo, Jorge, Gastel, and there were some daughters, Helena, Ika, and Mary. Um, Carlos Gracie was one of the I mean, like these serious guys. He's still uh, pretty influential today. Then he had some sons, Carlson, Hobson. Uh, he had a few daughters, but they weren't as big. Um, Helio is in here somewhere, but... Oh my God, this is so hard to read. Okay. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. So Carlos Gracie had three wives and he had about uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, 
8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21 kids. 23, 24, okay, okay, um, you might have had 26 kids. That's a lot. That's a whole lot. Okay, so, oh my god, (laughs) this is insane. So, Hickson was the son of Helio, and Holes was the son of Carlos. Helio and Carlos were brothers, and they took jiu-jitsu two very different ways. Helio, they say he was sickly and he was small and all that, but he was a pretty athletic-looking guy. They said that he was sickly and small because jiu-jitsu came up in Valetudo. Valetudo is anything goes fighting, basically MMA, but earlier. And uh, jiu-jitsu was designed, not designed, but it was fight. It was doing very well in Valetudo fights. And a little side note here. A lot of the reason that traditional jiu-jitsu looks down on leg lock techniques is because lucha libre, lucha libre wrestlers, Mexican wrestlers, were pretty good at leg locks at the time. And they were beating jiu-jitsu guys with leg locks. So uh, instead of adopting it and making it a technique of jiu-jitsu, they said, nah, let's not do that. Which a lot of modern jiu-jitsu today comes from guys like Hickson and Holes Gracie. Holes Gracie tragically died in a hang gliding accident. And I I can't really take it seriously. I mean, it's a hang gliding accident. But, you know, still he tragically died. Um, Hickson and Holes trained together. Now, just so you know, in Portuguese they pronounce R's as H's. So Rickson and Rolls are Hickson and Holes. Uh, Holes Gracie was effectively a um, outcast in the family because he was born out of marriage. So he went around and he learned things like wrestling and judo and uh, all kinds of other grappling sports. And he blended them into jiu-jitsu. And it's, it's, it's noted by a lot of people that he was potentially the best Gracie. He was a super aggressive fighter. Um, he is really who I think made Hickson who he is. And a lot of people agree with that. Um, Hickson's fight record of 400 and oh. I dispute that, but nevertheless, he was still an excellent jiu-jitsu player. Same with Holes. And those two brought jiu-jitsu into MMA through things like shootbox and Japanese um, Valetudo fights. Before MMA was a thing in Japan, Valetudo was a thing. So they had... Uh, developed jiu-jitsu through they hadn't been doing nogi yet unless it was valley tudo fights hickson used to fight in just like shorts with knee pads and the big difference in gi and nogi jiu-jitsu is the fact that with the gi because i was doing this yesterday because i just bought some um to start training in it you have handles in the sense that in nogi, it's really it's hard to get grips and keep them similar to wrestling, like because you have to grip someone's wrist or their collar, or you have to tie, you know, tie your hands up. 
like inside ties, outside ties, two on one. And they're sweaty. And there's no sleeves. There's nothing really except for rash guards, but they don't really help that much. If someone wants to break their grip, break your grip with a rash guard. It's easy. You just turn the blade of your hand down to the direction where their grip is open and you push out. But with a gi, you can grip onto it. Like if I gripped, I'm wearing a hoodie right now. If I gripped the open part, like where the neck opens up, I would have a handle. And then if I grabbed the wrist, around the wrist, just the fabric there, and did like a vertical pinch, it would be a handle. And those handles, really the gi exists in jiu-jitsu because of judo and because judo trains in the gi, but those handles make a lot more openings for certain techniques. Like you can't do, to my knowledge, you can't do a cross choke in jiu-jitsu like you can do in in no gi, like you can do in gi, because the fabric, and you can grip it, and you twist, and then you grab the other side of the lapel, and you scissor your your wrists, allows you to choke someone like that. You can't do that in no gi. Where the Ezekiel is easier in gi than it is in no gi, because you have a handle to grab onto. So, it makes a lot of sense, like, a lot of the best guys say train in both gi and no gi because you get better defense in the gi because it's harder to, harder to escape things, which I haven't been able to experience yet, but I, I want to. I'm soon going to. Um, about Greco-Roman, now I'm going to talk about Greco-Roman for a little bit. Greco-Roman wrestling is effectively the closest they got to replicating the ancient rules of wrestling uh, basically, it means no leg attacks. Now, I'm going to look this up to see if you can trip in Greco-Roman. Are trips legal in Greco-Roman? Because if they are, that seems like an exceptional way to take someone down. Um, no leg attacks or trips. Okay. So... That's out the window. So basically, anything above the waist is fine. Um, a lot of this is very similar to judo throws. Some of it uh, is kind of specifically for wrestling. Like I said, body lock throws. Um, America has a history of sucking terribly at Greco-Roman. Um, arguably, you can say it's because we don't really care about wrestling. Uh, we're kind of good at freestyle. We're one of the best countries in freestyle, but we don't really have a Greco team. The other countries that actually the countries that are best at it are all former Soviet states. Uh, kind of makes sense. I mean, the dude who is the best at Greco Roman wrestling ever is Alexander Karelin, who I've talked about on the show before, who was a Russian wrestler and didn't have a point scored on him for 13 years. And then Rulon Gardner showed up uh, and beat him in the, let's see, what Olympics was that, the 1996? Um, Rulon versus... Rulon versus Karelin. I think it was the 1996 Olympics. 
it was no Sydney Games in 2000. Okay, so basically, a new rule change made Alexander Karelin switching his grips illegal, and they went to parterre, and Karelin could not pick Rulon up off the ground because he was exceptionally fat, and he lost. Personally, I agree with the fact that it's a controversial loss. I think that Karelin should be 888 and 1. He is 887 and 2. Either way, one of the most dominant sports records in all of history. Only beaten by some weird dude who played cricket a lot. Um, the United States has a history of not presenting good athletes at the Greco-Roman events. Now, there is a kid named Adam Kuhn who just went to the Greco-Worlds and he won a silver medal which is the highest placing the United States has had in a while. Um, we don't really, like, America does not place in judo and Greco-Roman basically ever, uh, especially at first place. We kind of suck at those, um, probably because they're not as popular here. Like, I think what they should do is they should open up a division of, a third division of wrestling and call it submission wrestling. And what they should do is make it effectively ADCC at the Olympics is allow the top team, like the top freestyle dude, the top um, Greco guy, the top judo player and the top, you know, jujitsu world champions to come in at this Olympic event and compete to see who's the best grappler. Submission wrestling would be really cool to add to the Olympics, in my opinion. I don't think you should add uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu with the gi because it, there's a big difference in if you've ever seen pre-World War II judo and post-World War II judo, which was made the uh, Olympic changes. The way the game is is so much more boring because really what they're trying to do, set up a throw and get the instant victory, which is called Ipan, which basically you throw a dude right onto his back. Um, I don't know how often that happens, but with certain throws, it kind of is bound to happen. Like the Sayuinage shoulder throw. I don't really see how you don't throw someone onto their back because of the way you have their, their arm. Like, if they were to land on their stomach, they would go straight into an arm bar or break their arm, I think. Because you're going gripping and throwing with the collar. So they should, they should definitely land, like, either right on their back or very close. Like, you'd be able to settle in a side control against the pin. But then the other part of it is, if you throw and you have mount for 20 seconds, like, you win. So it doesn't seem like the hardest version of grappling um, to me. Now, I do think, definitely, if they were to change any of the grappling sports in the Olympics right now, judo should go back to its pre-war rules where you could have nuaza. Uh, basically you get 20 seconds now to put on a submission, which isn't a lot of time. And 
I think that moving Juno <sighs> back to its roots is an actual like not just throwing martial art, but is is a an art discipline that has you know throwing and it has the kosen aspects, which kosen is basically just jujitsu, ju- ju- but a little different. Um, and all the Nuwaza stuff, like the leg attacks of, of judo are perfectly fine. Like there's fireman's carries in judo. It's not really that much different from wrestling. I mean, it's basically wrestling in a jacket and pants. I, I see a lot of similarities and to take some of that, a lot of that stuff away just doesn't really make sense. Like, okay, we're trying to prove who's the better fighter here. Uh, why are we taking away certain moves? And a lot of those moves are super effective. Like the fireman's carry could result in an epon almost any time if you're really good at it. Or, I don't know, there is a there is a version of the double leg, I believe, called the Morote Gari in judo. Um, I'm going to check that out make sure I'm saying the right right terminology. Uh, morote. Uh, morote gari. Okay, let's check this out. Yeah. A morote gari is a double leg takedown adopted later by the Kodokan in their Shin Shinmeisho no Waza list. It's categorized as a hand technique, Teiwaza. The way they do double legs in judo I mean I wouldn't say it's a great double leg it's not like they're taking a shot or you know they're not setting it up the way a wrestler would which can be a lot of ways I mean some guys just shoot straight from the outside some guys get ties get you to step forward so they can get your trail leg and then they'll shoot on the trail leg um some you know there's a lot of ways to set it up but really in judo the morote gari it's just uh i'm gonna bend over and put my shoulder at your waist and i'm gonna grab the back of your knees and i'm gonna pull them in nah gotcha i think you know there's a lot of uh there's a lot of refinements that you can make to stuff like that but i also don't know the dynamics of why they do the the double leg that way it may just be a a thing that has to do with the gi it may also just be that because they trained on tatami mats which are pretty thin um there wasn't a whole lot of comfort in doing a sliding shot like there isn't a wrestling mat but you know things like that i definitely think um, f- freestyle wrestling is cool. I, you know, I really want like Greco Roman is also pretty interesting, but I don't think it's as popular as freestyle. I mean, it's all the the guys right now, like the international, like the best guys, the ones that get recognition and the one that get sponsorships are freestyle. Greco Roman dudes are like they're out there and they're terrifying and they're really good at what they do. But 
it's kind of like, oh, this is just the other version of wrestling. And you got to think, right? Like, even, even though the Greco guys aren't doing leg attacks, like, they're still great wrestlers. They have a lot of throwing ability. I mean, they would probably make freestyle wrestling way more entertaining because of the throws, which it's the best way to score points in wrestling is throws. If you get a like really high throw, like a chest wrap, and you throw the dude over your head, and then you pick him up and throw him again, like you win the match. And for a lot of guys, like that was how Corellan won matches. I mean, the exceptionally strong athletes, he would pick someone up and just throw. That was how he won. I mean, he was a Greco guy, but he would just wait. He would get into parterre and be like, oh, this match is over. Because he could pick basically anybody up from the parterre position with the reverse lift. And he would just toss him around. You know, I think a Greco guy could do great in freestyle. The only thing he would probably have to work is leg defense because those single leg, low single drop setups and stuff like that, that's all confusing. I mean, the double bar is also confusing. I mean, it's probably, it's definitely a technique in Greco's, the, the double bar. Basically, you uh, chicken wing your opponent's, both of your opponent's arms behind his back and you just kind of roll him over onto his back. Uh, it's a solid way to get pins. Hmm. 30 minutes. Um, the hell is this? Um, and in things like, okay, I have a general idea and I think that no matter where the grappling comes from, it all shares something. Like, a lot of different grappling systems have the double leg takedown in them. A lot of grappling systems have the Kimura in them. A lot of them have the guillotine choke in them somewhere. Like, freestyle wrestling isn't really freestyle because there's no submissions. And American wrestling used to have submissions. That's what catch is. It's called catches catch can. And guys would be like throwing on brutal submissions. I mean, in like step over a guy's arm and then bring your foot back down to the mat and use your arm as like a fulcrum or use your leg as a fulcrum to crank this guy's arm. I mean, it's, it's insane, but because they had to make wrestling safer and more applicable to schools, they had to take out submission holds. Which, I mean, if you teach someone how to do a submission hold properly, they probably won't get hurt. But we know that high school students, specifically high school athletes, don't always have the greatest ability to maintain skills and understand safety. However... However, I've seen kids in jiu-jitsu that are super young and are pretty good. 
I disagree with putting your kids in jujitsu that early because, you know, according to studies done by guys like Tudor Pampa in periodization, all these, the people who are world champions, people who are the best, tended to start at about 10 to 13 years old. Starting kids in anything before that, except not, not as a sport, but like general athletic capability stuff. Uh, gymnastics is a solid one. Breakdancing is apparently another great one. Um, playing every sport as another example. I mean, that's how the Russians select out uh, kids, how they develop their athletic abilities. They just play every sport in PE. Uh, the stuff you want to be doing with kids is is very young children. The weightlifting and stuff, you don't really want to be lifting weight because um, there's a scale. Effectively, once a child has hit the last stage of puberty, which is usually like 14, 15, let's just say 14, then they can start lifting because they have the full amount of hormones and uh, ability basically to recover and grow and change from weightlifting, not just, you know, break down muscles and barely recover, but not recover bigger, stronger, you know, the way you want to lift with kids it's basically like okay uh, we're gonna do one set of some kettlebell swings today and then like maybe tomorrow we're gonna mess around with uh, some jumps like we're gonna run a bit and then the next day like it's not periodized it's not like planned out it's just like okay uh, we're gonna kick the soccer ball around today or we're going to uh, swim like stuff like that because their athletic development isn't, to, they have none. So you have to build it and you have to teach, you know, kids how to be an effective athlete and you have to teach them how to be an efficient athlete and you have to get their work capacity up. I mean, before anything else is developed, you have to develop work capacity and it has to be huge. Like think of it as a pyramid, the work capacity has to be the base of your pyramid. A pyramid can only be as tall as it is wide. So, if you want to be the best, guess what's going to be the biggest part of your athletic ability? That's going to be your work capacity, your ability to do work for extended periods of time. Now, if you think about it this way, when you're playing... Mm, let's pick a sport. You're playing football. The average plays eight seconds. There's usually about 150 plays in a game, I believe. Uh, and the rest between plays can be 30 seconds to four minutes, depending on what's going on. So you have to train your body to be capable of doing a high intensity, high, uh, high percentage of your max athletic output effort every eight seconds 
or for eight seconds every 30 seconds. And you have to be able to do that for four quarters. Or you have to be able to do that for two quarters, maybe. (sighs) Depends on how much you play. But the thing that's going to be the biggest factor in incredible performance, besides, you know, strength and speed, is your ability to maintain those things without getting tired, or let's not say without getting tired, without getting exhausted, and without having lactic acid build up in your muscles to the point where you can't move as effectively as you could before. And that stuff is done by work capacity. If you can sprint a 40 in 4.2 seconds, but you can't do it again until the next day, that's probably not the best way to describe work capacity. If you can run a 4.240, that's your top speed, that's 100%. You want to run 80% of that consistently the entire game. So let's say you run a 4.8 the entire game. If you run a 4.2 and you're running a 4.8, that's it. I don't know if that's 80% exactly, but that's what you want to be at the entire game because you're not going to cycle through all your energy as quickly as as you would going 100%. I mean, if you have 100% max, you're not going to be recovered nearly enough by the time the next effort begins. So, you would go 80% and you get fully recovered or close to fully recovered between efforts. And if you have another guy who's going 100%, well, he's not going to be able to maintain 100% for the whole game. He's going to maintain it for a quarter of the game. And then your 80% is going to be faster towards the end of the game when he's all all down in the dumps because he hasn't been able to maintain and regulate his his ability, his performance. So see why you want to be coming in and competing at like 80%. You want that to be your effort. That's your baseline when you start the match, your effort. And then... When it's adjusted, when you see, okay, this is what's happening, then you adjust and percent up. Because if you start off at 100%, they know, oh, he's coming at me 100%. I just have to wait for him to tire out a bit. But if you come in at 80, they come in at 100, well, you're just playing around with them a little bit until they get tired. That's when you really start to apply the pressure. And once you start to apply the pressure to their 80%, that's when people panic. When they panic, then you bring them down to 60%, 50%, whatever. It keeps declining until you win. I think about it this way. One of the things that I'm fascinated, absolutely fascinated by in jiu-jitsu is pressure. I want to be able to put so much pressure on my opponent in like side control and mount and, you know, whatever other top positions there are, that they tap from that. If I can get someone to tap from side control pressure, 
putting a Kimura on or putting a choke on isn't going to be that hard because they already want to get out. They're like, why is, why does he feel this heavy? And there's ways to do that. I mean, from what I've heard, you want to puff your chest out and you want to focus your weight on their diaphragm so they can't breathe that great. You know, there's people who say use your knees to check their hip and shoulder, but I think you should be on your toes with side control all the time. Um, the head and arm thing, it's effective. Especially if you switch to something like Kazakatame, judo side control. It's, uh, it's interesting, I think. And then with mount, I mean, if you're just sitting up on someone's chest, like right up on the top of their chest, high mount, they can't really buck you off because you're not on their hips and you're right on top of their chest. So it's going to be hard for them to breathe. Hmm. 41 minutes. Well, I think I'm going to close this episode up. Um, I'll see you guys on Friday. I remember rate the show, share with your friends, do whatever you got to do. Um, I will see you guys then. Peace out.